Chapter Ten of Linda Tressel by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Ten. Peter Steinmark, now that he was an engaged man, affianced to a young bride, was urgent from day to day with Madame Starbuck that the date of his wedding should be fixed. He soon found that all Nuremberg knew that he was to be married. Perhaps her Molk had not been so silent and discreet as would have been becoming in a man so highly placed, and perhaps Peter himself had let slip a word to some confidential friend who had betrayed him. Be that as it might, all Nuremberg knew of Peter's good fortune, and he soon found that he should have no peace till the thing was completed. "'She's quite well enough, I am sure,' said Peter to Madame Starbeck, "'and if there is anything amiss she can finish getting well afterwards.' Madame Starbeck was sufficiently eager herself that Linda should be married without delay, but nevertheless she was angry at being so pressed, and used rather sharp language in explaining to Peter that he would not be allowed to dictate on such a subject. "'Ah, well, if it isn't this year it won't be next,' said Peter, on one occasion when he had determined to show his power. Madame Starbeck did not believe the threat, but she did begin to fear that perhaps after all there might be fresh obstacles. It was now near the end of November, and though Linda still kept her room, her aunt could not see that she was suffering from any real illness. When, however, a word was said to press the poor girl, Linda would declare that she was weak and sick, unable to walk, in short, that at present she would not leave her room. Madame Stabak was beginning to be angered at this, but for all that Linda had not left her room. It was now two weeks since she had suffered herself to be betrothed, and Peter had twice been up to her chamber, creaking with his shoes along the passages. Twice she had passed a terrible half-hour, while he had sat, for the most part silent, in an old wicker chair by her bedside. Her aunt had of course been present, and had spoken most of the words that had been uttered during these visits, and these words had nearly altogether referred to Linda's ailments. Linda was still not quite well, she had said, but would soon be better, and then all would be properly settled. Such was the purport of the words which Madame Starbeck would speak on these occasions. "'Before Christmas?' Peter had once asked. "'No,' Linda had replied very sharply. "'It must be as the Lord shall will it,' said Madame Starbeck. That had been so true that neither Linda nor Peter had found it necessary to express dissent.' On both these occasions Linda's energy had been chiefly used to guard herself from any sign of a caress. Peter had thought of it, but Linda lay far away upon the bed, and the lover did not see how it was to be managed. He was not sure, moreover, whether Madame Starbeck would not have been shocked at any proposal in reference to an anti-nuptial embrace. On these considerations he abstained. It was now near the end of November, and Linda knew that she was well. Her aunt had proposed some day in January for the marriage, and Linda, though she had never assented, could not on the moment find any plea for refusing altogether to have a day fixed. All she could do was to endeavour to stave off the evil. Madame Starbeck seemed to think that it was indispensable that a day in January should be named. Therefore, at last, the thirtieth of that month was, after some fashion, fixed for the wedding. Linda never actually assented, but after many discourses it seemed to be decided that it should be so. Peter was so told, 
and with some grumbling expressed himself as satisfied. But when would Linda come down to him? He was sure that Linda was well enough to come down if she would. At last a day was fixed for that also. It was arranged that the three should go to church together on the first Sunday in December. It would be safer so than in any other way. He could not make love to her in church. On the Saturday evening Linda was downstairs with her aunt. Peter, as she knew well, was at the Rother Ross on that evening, and would not be home till past ten. Tetram was out, and Linda had gone down to take her supper with her aunt. The meal had been eaten almost in silence, for Linda was very sad, and Madame Starbuck herself was beginning to feel that the task before her was almost too much for her strength. Had it not been that she was carried on by the conviction that things stern and hard and cruel would be in the long run comforting to the soul, she would have given way. But she was a woman not prone to give way when she thought that the soul's welfare was concerned. She had seen the shrinking, retreating horror with which Linda had almost involuntarily contrived to keep her distance from her future husband. She had listened to the girl's voice, and knew that there had been not one light-hearted tone from it since that consent had been wrung from the sufferer by the vehemence of her own bedside prayers. She was aware that Linda from day to day was becoming thinner and thinner, paler and still paler. But she knew, or thought that she knew, that it was God's will, and so she went on. It was not a happy time even for Madame Starbuck, but it was a time in which to Linda it seemed that hell had come to her beforehand with all its terrors. There was, however, one thing certain to her yet. She would never put her hand into that of Peter Steinmark in God's house after such a fashion that any priest should be able to say that they two were man and wife in the sight of God. On this Saturday evening, Tetram was out, as was the habit with her on alternate Saturday evenings. On such occasions, Linda would usually do what household work was necessary in the kitchen, preparatory to the coming Sabbath. But on this evening, Madame Starbuck herself was employed in the kitchen, as Linda was not considered to be well enough to perform the task. Linda was sitting alone, between the fire and the window, with no work in her hand, with no book before her, thinking of her fate. When there came upon the panes of the window, sundry, small, sharp, quickly repeated rappings, as though gravel had been thrown upon them. She knew at once that the noise was not accidental, and jumped up on her feet. If it was some mode of escape, let it be what it might, she would accept it. She jumped up, and with short, hurried steps placed herself close to the window. The quick, sharp little blows upon the glass were heard again, and then there was a voice. "'Linda! Linda!' Heavens and earth! It was his voice. There was no mistaking it. Had she heard but a single syllable in the faintest whisper, she would have known it. It was Ludovic Valcam, and he had come for her, even out of his prison. He should find that he had not come in vain. Then the word was repeated. "'Linda, are you there?' "'I'm here.' she said, speaking very faintly, and trembling at the sound of her own voice. Then the iron pin was withdrawn from the wooden shutter on the outside, as it could not have been withdrawn had not some traitor within the house prepared the way for it, and the heavy Venetian blinds were folded back, and Linda could see the outlines of the man's head and shoulders in the dark, close to the panes of the window. It was raining at the time, and the night was very dark, but still she could see the outline. She stood and watched him, for though she was willing to be with him, she felt that she could do nothing. In a moment the frame of the window was raised, and his head was within the room, within her aunt's parlour, where her aunt might now have been for all that he would have known. 
were it not that Tetchen was watching at the corner, and knew to the scraping of a carrot how long it would be before Madame Staubach had made the soup for tomorrow's dinner. "'Linda,' he said, "'how is it with you?' "'Oh, Ludovic!' "'Linda, will you go with me now?' "'What, now, this instant?' "'Tonight. Listen, dearest, for she will be back. Go to her in ten minutes from now, and tell her that you are weary and would be in bed. She will see you to your room, perhaps, and there may be a delay. But when you can—' Come down silently, with your thickest cloak and your strongest hat, and any little thing you can carry easily. Come without a candle, and creep to the passage window. I will be there. If she will let you go upstairs alone, you may be there in half an hour. It is our only chance. Then the window was closed, and after that the shutter, and then the pin was pushed back, and Linda was again alone in her aunt's chamber. To be there in half an hour! To commence such a job as this at once! to go to her aunt with a premeditated lie that would require perfect acting, and to have to do this in ten minutes, in five minutes, while the minutes were flying from her like sparks of fire. It was impossible. If it had been enjoined upon her for tomorrow's, so that there should have been time for thought, she might have done it. But this call upon her for instant action almost paralysed her. And yet what other hope was there? She told herself that she would do anything, however wicked, however dreadful, that would save her from the proposed marriage. She had sworn to herself that she would do something. That Steinmark's wife she would never be. And here had come to her a possibility of escape, of escape too which had in it so much of sweetness. She must lie to her aunt. Was not every hour of life a separate lie? And as for acting a lie, what was the difference between that and telling it, except in the capability of the liar? Her aunt had forced her to lie. No truth was any longer possible to her. Would it not be better to lie for Ludovic Valcam than to lie for Peter Steinmark? She looked at the upright clock which stood in the corner of the room, and seeing that the ten minutes was already past, she crossed at once over into the kitchen. Her aunt was standing there, and Tetchen, with her bonnet on, was standing by. Tetchen, as soon as she saw Linda, explained that she must be off again at once. She had only returned to fetch some article for a little niece of hers which Madame Starback had given her. "'Aunt Charlotte?' said Linda. I am very weary. You, you will not be angry, will you, if I go to bed? It is not yet nine o'clock, my dear. But I am tired, and I fear that I shall lack strength for to-morrow. Oh, Linda, Linda! But indeed, had you foreseen the future, you might have truly said that you would want strength for to-morrow. Then go, my dear, said Madame Starbuck, kissed her niece and blessed her, and after that with careful hand threw some salt into the pot that was simmering on the stove. Peter Steinmark was to dine with them on the morrow, and he was a man who cared that his soup should be well seasoned. Linda, terribly smitten by the consciousness of her own duplicity, went forth and crept upstairs to her room. She had now, as she calculated, a quarter of an hour, and she would wish, if possible, to be punctual. She looked out from him from the window, and could only see that it was very dark, and could hear that it was raining hard. She took her thickest cloak and her strongest hat. She would do in all things as he bade her. And then she tried to think what else she would take. She was going forth, whither she knew not. Then came upon her a thought that on the morrow, for many morrows afterwards, perhaps for all morrows to come, there would be no comfortable wardrobe to which she could go for such decent changes of raiment as she required. She looked at her frock, and having one darker and thicker than that she wore, she changed it instantly and then it was not only her garments that she was leaving behind her, 
for ever afterwards, for ever and ever and ever, she must be a castaway. The die had been thrown now, and everything was over. She was leaving behind her all decency, all feminine respect, all the clean ways of her pure young life, all modest thoughts, all honest, serviceable daily tasks, all godliness, all hope of heaven. The silent, quick-running tears streamed down her face as she moved rapidly about the room. The thing must be done, must be done, must be done even though earth and heaven were to fail her for ever afterwards. Earth and heaven would fail her for ever afterwards, but still the thing must be done. All should be endured, if by that all she could escape from the man she loathed. She collected a few things, what little store of money she had, four or five guilders perhaps, and a pair of light shoes and clean stockings, and a fresh handkerchief or two, and a little collar. And then she started. He told her to bring what she could carry easily. She must not disobey him, but she would fain have brought more had she dared. At the last moment she returned, and took a small hairbrush and a comb. Then she looked round the room with a hurried glance, put out her candle, and crept silently down the stairs. On the first landing she paused, for it was possible that Peter might be returning. She listened, and then remembered that she would have heard Peter's feet, even on the walk outside. Very quickly, but still more gently than ever, she went down the last stairs. From the foot of the stairs into the passage there was a moment in which she must be within sight of the kitchen door. She flew by, and felt that she must have been seen. But she was not seen. In an instant she was at the open window, and in another instant she was standing beside her lover on the gravel path. What he said to her she did not hear. What he did she did not know. She had completed her task now. She had done her part, and had committed herself entirely into his hands. She would ask no question. She would trust him entirely. She only knew that at the moment his arm was round her, and that she was being lifted off the bank into the river. "'Dearest girl, can you see? No, nothing, of course, as yet. Step down. There is a boat here. There are two boats. Lean upon me, and we can walk over. There. Do not mind treading softly. They cannot hear because of the rain. We should be out of it in a minute. I am sorry you should be wet, but yet it is better for us.' She hardly understood him, but yet she did as he told her, and in a few minutes she was standing on the other bank of the river, in the Rudenplatz. Here Linda perceived that there was a man awaiting them, to whom Ludovic gave certain orders about the boats. Then Ludovic took her by the hand and ran with her across the platz, till they stood beneath the archway of the brewery warehouse, where she had so often watched him as he went in and out. "'Here we are safe,' he said, stooping down and kissing her, and brushing away the drops of rain from the edges of her hair. "'Oh, what safety! To be there in the middle of the night with him, and not know whither she was to go, where she was to lie, whether she would ever again know that feeling of security which would be given to her throughout her whole life by her aunt's presence and the walls of her own house. Safe was ever peril equal to hers. Linda, say that you love me. Say that you are my own. I do love you, she said. Otherwise how should I be here? And you had promised to marry that man? I should never have married him. I should have died. "'Dearest Linda, but come, you must not stand here.' Then he took her up, up the warehouse stairs, into a gloomy chamber, from which there was a window looking on to the Rudenplatz, and there, with many caresses, he explained to her his plans. The caresses she endeavoured to avoid, and, when she could not avoid them, to moderate. "'Would he remember,' she asked, "'just for the present, all that she had gone through, and spare her for a while, because she was so weak?' 
She made her little appeal with swimming eyes and low voice, looking into his face, holding his great hand the while between her own. He swore that she was his queen, and should have her way in everything. But would she not give him one kiss? He reminded her that she had never kissed him. She did, as he asked her, just touching his lips with hers, and then she stood by him, leaning on him, while he explained to her something of his plans. He kept close to the window, as it was necessary that he should keep his eyes upon the red house. His plan was this. There was a train which passed by the Nuremberg station on its way to Augsburg at three o'clock in the morning. By this train he proposed that they should travel to that city. He had, he said, the means of providing accommodation for her there, and no one should know whither they had gone. He did not anticipate that anyone in the house opposite would learn that Linda had escaped till the next morning. But should any suspicion have been aroused, and should the fact be ascertained, there would certainly be lights moving in the house, and lights would be seen from the window of Linda's own chamber. Therefore, he proposed, during the long hours that they must yet wait, to stand at his present spot and watch, so that he might know at the first moment whether there was any commotion among the inmates of the Red House. "'There goes old Peter to bed,' said he. "'He won't be the first to find out. I'll bet a florin.' And afterwards he signified the fact that Madame Starbuck had gone to her chamber. This was the moment of danger, as it might be very possible that Madame Starbuck would go into Linda's room. In that case, as he said, he had a little carriage outside the walls which would take them to the first town on the route to Augsburg. Had a light been seen but for a moment in Linda's room, they were to start, and would certainly reach the spot where the carriage stood before any followers could be on their heels. But Madame Starbuck went to her own room, without noticing that of her niece, and then the red house was all dark and all still. They would have made the best of their way to Augsburg before their flight would be discovered. During the minute in which they were watching the lights, Linda stood close to her lover, leaning on his shoulder and supported by his arm. But this was over by ten, and then there remained nearly five hours during which they must stay in their present hiding-place. Up to this time Linda's strength had supported her under the excitement of her escape, but now she was like to faint, and it was necessary at any rate that she should be allowed to lie down. He got sacks for her for some part of the building, and with these constructed for her a bed on the floor, near to the spot which he must occupy himself in still keeping his eye upon the red house. He laid her down, and covered her feet with sacking, and put sacks under her head for a pillow. He was very gentle with her, and she thanked him over and over again, and endeavoured to think that her escape had been fortunate, and that her position was happy. Had she not succeeded in flying from Peter Steinmark? And after such a flight would not all idea of a marriage with him be out of the question? For some little time she was cheered by talking to him. She asked him about his imprisonment. Ha! <laughs> said he, if I cannot be one too many for such an old fogey as her milk, I'll let out my brains to an ass, and take to grazing on thistles. His offence had been political, and had been committed in conjunction with others, and he and they were sure of success ultimately, were sure of success very speedily. Linda could understand nothing of the subject, but she could hope that her lover might prosper in his undertaking, and she could admire and love him for encountering the dangers of such an enterprise. And then, half sportively, half in earnest, she taxed him with that matter which was next to her heart. Who had been the young woman with the blue frock and the felt hat who had been with him when he was brought before the magistrate? 
young woman with blue frock. Who told you of the young woman, Linda? He came and knelt beside her as he asked the question, leaving his watch for the moment, and she could see by the dim light of the lamp outside that there was a smile upon his face, almost joyous, full of mirth. Who told me? The magistrate you were taken to. Her mock told me himself, said Linda, almost happily. That smile upon his face had in some way vanquished her feeling of jealousy. "'Then he is a greater scoundrel than I took him to be, or else a more utter fool. The girl in the blue frocklander was one of our young men who was to get out of the city in that disguise, and I believe Hermolk knew it when he tried to set you against me by telling you the story.' Whether Hermolk had known this, or whether he had simply been fool enough to be taken in by the blue frock and the felt hat, it was not for us to inquire here. But Ludovic was greatly amused at the story, and Linda was charmed at the explanation she had received. It was only an extra feather in her lover's cap that he should have been connected with a blue frock and felt hat under such circumstances as those now explained to her. Then he went back to the window, and she turned on her side and attempted to sleep. To be in all respects a castaway, a woman to whom other women would not speak, she knew that such was her position now. She had done a deed which would separate her for ever from those who were respectable and decent and good. Peter Steinmark would utterly despise her. It was very well that something should have occurred which would make it impossible that he should any longer wish to marry her. But it would be very bitter to her to be rejected even by him, because she was unfit to be an honest man's wife. And then she asked herself questions about her young lover, who was so handsome, so bold, so tender to her, who was in all outward respects just what a lover should be. Would he wish to marry her after she had thus consented to fly with him alone at night? Or would he wish that she should be his light of love, as her aunt had been once cruel enough to call her? There would be no cruelty, at any rate no injustice, in so calling her now. And should there be any hesitation on his part, would she ask him to make her his wife? It was very terrible to her to think that it might come to pass that she should have on her knees to implore this man to marry her. He had called her his queen, but he never said that she should be his wife. And would any pastor marry them, coming to him as they must come as two runaways? She knew that certain preliminaries were necessary, certain bidding of bands and processes before the magistrates. Her own bands, and those of her betrothed Peter Steinmark, had been asked once in the church of St. Lawrence, as she had heard with infinite disgust. She did not see that it was possible that Ludovic should marry her, even if he were willing to do so. But it was too late to think of all this now, and she could only moisten the rough sacking with her tears. "'You'd better get up now, dearest,' said Ludovic, again bending over her. "'Has the time come?' Yes, the time has come, and we must be moving. The rain is over, which is a comfort. It is as dark as pitch, too. Cling close to me. I should know my way if I were blindfold. She did cling close to him, and he conducted her through narrow streets and passages out to the city gate, which led to the railway station. Nuremberg has still gates like a fortified town, and there are, I believe, porters at the gates with huge keys. Nuremberg delights to perpetuate the memories of things that are gone. But ingress and egress are free to everybody, by night as well as by day, as it must be when railway trains arrive and start at three in the morning. 
and the burgomaster and warders and sentinels and porters, though they still carried the keys, know that the glory of their house has gone. Railway tickets for two were given to Linda without a question, for to her was entrusted the duty of procuring them, and they soon hurrying away towards Augsburg through the dark night. At any rate, they had been successful in escaping. "'After tomorrow we'll be as happy as the day is long,' said Ludovic, as he pressed his companion close to his side. Linda had told herself, but did not tell him, that she could never be happy again. End of chapter 10